Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have this place together to gather. We pray that you would be with us here today. We thank you that we have brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us, to build us up, to strengthen us, to rebuke us, to do all of the things that are required of us in your word. And Father, we pray that today as we study your word together, that you will work in our lives and that we will be changed because we truly want Christ to be all to us here at this church and in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Didn't Brad do a great job last week kicking off our local evangelism month? Amen. I really appreciated the things that he had to say, and it's always amazing to me when you bring in a speaker and, and they have things to say that uh, fit really well. I mean, we give him a theme, um, but let's face it, he's Brad Buser, so we know he's going to do kind of his own thing anyway, right? Uh, but it's great when it, when it fits in so well uh, with what we uh, are looking at. And he did a great job reminding us that God's word just assumes that as believers in Christ who have been changed by the gospel, that we will be involved uh, spreading the good news and sharing the love of Christ with others around us. But I really appreciated, and maybe he coined this term, maybe it's already been out there in existence, but he, he encouraged us that we need to live lives that are get toable. Uh, meaning that we need to be willing to give people access to our lives if we're going to want the gospel and, and God's word that's in us to penetrate uh, into them as well. Uh, and he also left us with the question that, as Christians, do we own our responsibility to our neighbors? Uh, and, and, and really, as a church, that's what Local Evangelism Month is all about. As a community that's been changed by Christ, do we own our responsibility as a congregation uh, to the people that God has placed in uh, our lives. So yes, it fit great with our theme, uh, which is compelling community. And to get us started this morning, uh, I want to work on giving us a, a working definition of what that means, compelling community. Uh, and, and so we're going to kind of look at the meaning and the implications uh, of what that means for us. Uh, compelling community is would help if I turned my remote on. Uh, compelling community is... Hey, how about that? Whoa, there they go. Uh, compelling community is the fact that by design, God has created his church to be the vehicle that draws people to himself. God has designed it this way. He has designed the church to be the vehicle that he used to draw people to himself. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the supernatural nature of the church. And we're going to be studying John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. Now in our culture, people oftentimes either misuse or abuse or just shy away from completely using the word supernatural. See, because some people throw it around very loosely, like, man, that guy has a supernatural ability to, to run the football or to throw a football or to pitch or to play the cello or to whatever it might be. We, we loosely say, oh, man, they have the supernatural ability to, to do that. Or sometimes we get so skittish about, well, we, supernatural is, is kind of has this connotation of, of you know, being mystical, and I kind of want to shy away from, from that uh, altogether. But I want us to understand that, that a supernatural act is something that can only be accomplished 
by God. That is why, that is by definition what the term supernatural means, outside of the natural realm of things. And so we're going to look together at, at John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, to see, to see why God has called us to do supernatural things that we can only accomplish through him. So let's begin uh, uh, looking at John chapter 13 together. It says, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man... Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our first point this morning is, and so it begins. Because when we come to this point in Scripture, it's like, the beginning of a NASCAR race or a boxing match or, or something along those lines, it has this, this, this pregnant anticipation of big events that are coming in the lives of the Gospels. And so we see that Judas leaves, but instead of focusing on the betrayer, our passage starts out talking about the fact that Judas leaves, but Jesus doesn't focus that, on that. Instead, he turns their attention to something very big, to something very supernatural. He talks with them about God's redemptive plan. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was having a meeting with my closest uh, people uh, on this earth, and I said in that meeting that one of them was going to betray me, and then he kind of kisses me and leaves, um, when he leaves, I'd have something to say about that guy. Just, just naturally speaking, that would be like a big thing. Because I'm sure that the disciples are going, okay, Jesus says somebody's going to betray him, and now Judas is leaving. What's going on there? But Jesus doesn't spend any time with his disciples discussing that. Instead, he wants them to focus their eyes on the bigger thing in this world. And, and that must have been very confusing for the disciples, if we're being completely honest. Besides the fact that Judas just left after Jesus said someone is going to betray, uh, betray him, Jesus had talked about a lot of other things leading up to that, and now he's beginning to unpack some future plans for them. After talking about the fact that he would betray, be betrayed, he talks about the cross and how it would soon be the supreme glory of God. Jesus is looking forward to the cross when he's talking about the fact that God is going to glorify himself in him. And the disciples still at this point had no clue what that would mean. But John links the term glorify five times in this passage to the Son of Man. Five different times and in five different ways, God... Or, or Jesus says to his disciples that he will be glorified by the events that are essentially coming up in the future, all as part of God's redemptive plan. And, and, as, and, and as he's linking those glorified terms, Jesus is linking himself to God, and that God the Father will be glorified in him, and he will glorify God the Father, and, and that through the, the act that he is going to do, that God would ultimately 
have maximum glory that he deserves. And in fact, the language that John uses uh, links Jesus' work on the cross to his, to his redemptive work, to his resurrection. The, the words that are used there to describe it, that, that he will be glorified there, link all of those events in John's gospel. And, and so Jesus has been repeatedly using these themes, and he'll continue to use them in the, in the rest of the book of John with the disciples. And so Jesus is clearly linking himself in his, his glorifying work to God's plan of redemption. But again, the, the disciples, they're in the middle of all this. They would have certainly been confused by this kind of talk. And so we can see how Jesus will be glorified because we have the privilege that the disciples don't. We can look back on God's plan to understand it. We have the opportunity to look back on these events and put them into some kind of order in our minds. But the disciples at the time, man, they would have had to have been flabbergasted. You see, all of the teaching in leading up to the, the Last Supper that Jesus had with the disciples, if you just look at some of the themes there, we, we see that Jesus has been having a difficult conversation with them about some very difficult events. And then in verse 33 of our passage, Jesus calls the disciples little children. He says, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me just as I said to the And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus uses this little children term of endearment with the disciples because I I imagine that as he's unpacked some of these events, that they were kind of looking at him wide-eyed and flabbergasted going, what's going on here? We don't understand. Because Jesus was, was talking about his work to come on the cross, but he had also just washed their feet and explained to them what being a servant was all about. He, he had talked about his betrayal. Now he, he had predicted Peter's denial. Peter, the arrogant one, the one who was bold, the one who would never deny Jesus. He, he'd done all of those things, and in using veiled terminology, he continues to speak about the work that he would do to glorify himself and to glorify God the Father. And if the disciples are anything like you and I, they would have had to have just been confused. But Jesus' work on the cross is the centerpiece of God's plan for redemption. We know that looking back. We know that. But the disciples at that time, they didn't. And so Jesus says, don't worry, little children. This is what's going to happen. God is going to glorify himself by what I am about to do. So we can title all that kind of section really God's redemptive plan. And that's really what Jesus is laying out for them there. And so he's laying out for them what we know from Ephesians 1, that they were chosen in him before the beginning of time. And that they have a role and a responsibility in that plan that God is going to use to glorify himself in Christ. And so what we're going to really spend our time looking at this morning is what was their role, and therefore what is our role in that plan. If Jesus, at this moment in time of his teaching with the disciples, takes the time to unpack what their role and their responsibility is in God's plan of redemption, we should pay attention to that. 
And so in God's plan for redemption, it's important for us to understand that, that Jesus never gives us a command that he will not help us to fulfill. The disciples, even though they were confused and, and, and they weren't sure what was coming, Jesus knew what was coming. So as a disciple of Christ, Jesus leaves us clear instructions as well in verse 34. As he says to his disciples that this would be their role in God's plan of redemption. A new command I give to you, love one another. This is a simple, straightforward command given by Jesus. We are called to love one another. And at face value, that is really easy and simple to understand. But we really have to understand that that is at the heart and the soul of God's redemptive plan for the world. That his children would love one another. Everything that we call to do as believers, are called to do as believers, can revolve around this one central piece. Love is the cog through which all other commands that Christ has given to us must be followed. But at face value, when we, when we look at this, the command to love is a new command. It's a new command to do the supernatural. And I want you to, to think with me why I'm saying that. Because at face value, they've been told to love one another many times over. Jesus and God has been teaching that to his children from the very beginning. So what is so new about this command? I mean, think about it with me. We are all commanded to love God. We know from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, that we read here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The Jews knew this. They, they recited it regularly. It was, it was part of who they were. It was ingrained in them. Loving God was central to everything that they believed as a Jewish person. There's nothing new about that command. We're also, they were also commanded to love their neighbor. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So, so loving God, there's nothing new about that command. Loving your neighbor, there's nothing new about that command either. The new nature of the command to love is that we are called to love as Jesus loves. That is the new nature of that command because there's nothing new about a command to love. Jesus says, just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. And that is much more than a natural human love or affection. That is much more than simple caring for and compassion toward your neighbor. This is a commandment that, that the commandment to love, it has no meaning and no significance in this context apart from the words, as I have loved you. The new nature of this command is to love with the supernatural love of Christ. This is clearly different from any kind of love that they have been commanded to do at any point in their lives. Jesus gave them a new command. Again, looking back, we have information that the first disciples lacked. We understand that, that this promise, this new command, the fact that it's a supernatural command, 
It cannot come from themselves. We, we see evidence of that one chapter later in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 18 say, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. One chapter later, Jesus says, that new command that I've given to you, that new requirement, that supernatural love that I want you to have for others, to love as I have loved you, there's only one way that that's possible. There's only one way that you can accomplish that, and that's if my Holy Spirit is in you. And when I go from you, I will send the Spirit of the Lord to you. The, the promise that is given in John 14 enables us, empowers us to love as Jesus loved because only in the Holy Spirit can we love with a supernatural love. Only in the Holy Spirit can we love as Jesus loved us. Only in the Holy Spirit can we love with a love that is not our own, but it ultimately is from God himself. And, and the command that we're given, and ultimately any command that we are given as Christians, can only be accomplished because of the promise in John chapter 14. We can't accomplish anything for God on our own. It's only if the Holy Spirit is in us that we can accomplish the eternal things that God has called us to accomplish. These are supernatural things that God calls us to do. And to think that we can do them on our own is arrogant, it's prideful, and ultimately it's downright dangerous. Because when we try to accomplish the things of God in my own strength, without the power of God, I'm placing myself in the authority seat. And I'm placing myself in the seat of power. We need to make sure that we as a church and as individuals are placing our trust in Christ. The fact that the Holy Spirit is in us to empower us to accomplish the things that he would want us to do. Because our, our role in God's plan of redemption is subservient to the will of God. Our role in God's plan of redemption can only be accomplished if God himself is working in us. And that means us as an individual, and that means us as a body of believers here at First Baptist Church. That can only happen if God is at work. And so I want to spend some time this morning looking at the marks of a compelling church. If, if being a compelling church is, is understanding the fact that the church is the vehicle that has been designed by God to reach out to the world, and, that, and that's a place where Christians should gather together to worship and to exalt his name and to be learning and growing and to be discipled so that we can be going out and impacting the lives of others, then we should know and we should understand the marks of a compelling church. And the first thing I want to share with you about being a compelling church and having that kind of community, the first thing I want to share with you is that ultimately, we don't need God to build community in our church. We don't need God to just build community. 
If we want to gather together in small groups, if we want to gather together as, as single moms, if we want to gather together as young parents, if we want to gather together as older couples, as, as singles, as, as, as people that uh, are going to college, as people that aren't going to college, we can gather together and create community around all sorts of things. We don't necessarily need God to build community. People out in the world gather together and build community for all sorts of reasons. We could find some cause to rally around together. We could find some sport to rally around together. We could find some music that we have similar interests in to gather around together. But those are all terrible reasons for community because we can do all of those without God. But even though we can easily create programs and classes and groups that draw people into a sense of community, it will not be a supernatural community if we do it without God. So I want us to remember that we must have God to build a supernatural, compelling community. While we can build community without God, we cannot build a supernatural, compelling community that can draw people to God without God working in us. Jamie Dunlap, the author uh, uh, of a book with Mark Dever, uh, describes that kind of community as this. He says, I'll define local church community as a togetherness and commitment we experience that transcends all natural bonds because of our commonality in Jesus Christ. Far from being a nice-to-have element of your church, community is core to who you are. Scripture teaches that the community that matters is community built by God. We may cultivate it, feed it, protect it, and use it, but we dare not pretend to create it. You see, sometimes we as believers think, well, I just need to create this kind of a community and then that will draw people to themselves. The reality is, is that if God is not creating it, it is of no value. We cannot accomplish anything of eternal value outside of our dependence on God to do those things. Think about this hypothetical but very real scenario. Let's say there's a 70 or 80-year-old woman who attends our church, and a young couple's getting married, and they're at their wedding reception, and this 70-year-old, 80-year-old woman is sitting at this table with co-workers from the couple who's just been wed. And the couple's looking at this 80-year-old woman and saying, what do you have in common with this 20, these 20-year-old 20 kids? Are you like great aunt? Or No, no, they just go to my church. And I've been working with this young lady on what it means to be a godly woman. And I am so excited that now she has the opportunity to be a godly wife. And I'm so excited that I wanted to celebrate this next step of her life with her. I can guarantee you the people sitting at that table go, man, she's got nothing in common with them. She, she's 80 and they're 20. That's 60 years different. She could, she could be their grandma. She could be their great-grandma. How do they have anything in common? And that's a beautiful thing when the world can look at us and go, man, they have nothing in common. And we can go, but we have Christ. That's what brings us together. That's what 
compels me to love the people that I gather with is that even though some of them are completely different than I am, we serve the Lord together. Or perhaps there's a visitor that comes to a small group or, or t- to some Bible study and they, and they look around and they go, man, this is, this is completely different. There's 20-year-olds and 60-year-olds and, and couples and singles and widows. And, and, and they say, man, that is something different. What brings you together? Jesus brings us together. And, and when we... We need to recognize we all have a tendency to gather toward things that are similar to us. And I'm going to gather with people that like the same music as me sometimes. And I'm going to gather with people that like the same activities as I do. And they like to read the same books as I do. And they, and they like to you know, spend their time doing the things that I like to do. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But where, there's n- where there is nothing that draws us together other than Christ, that really demonstrates the compelling nature of the gospel in our lives. When people look at us and they say, man, there is nothing that they have in common, but yet they see that we can go out to breakfast and we can discuss things together and we have this brotherly love for one another and we have a unity and, and, and even though we disagree on some things, there's just something that, that draws us together. That is the compelling nature of the gospel and the unity that God can bring in the gospel. And our passage commands us, and it tells us that we will know, that the world will know that we're Christians by the love that they see in us. They will know there's something different because they'll see us loving as Christ loved. But ultimately, the command to to love one another is only one mark of a compelling church. It's not the only mark of the compelling church. I think it's a very important mark of the compelling church. But ultimately, anything that Jesus commands us to do that can only be accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit in us, that is what makes the gospel compelling to the world around us. Because they see something supernatural happening. They see grace and mercy being shown to one another. They see forgiveness. They see some of those kinds of things taking place that don't take place outside of God's people. And for the most part, we know what we're commanded to do. As brothers and sisters in Christ, if you've been part of a good church for any amount of time, you know what some of the commands that we are commanded to do are. So we're just going to kind of remind ourselves of a few of these marks of a compelling community. What are some things that that make us a supernatural, compelling community? Marks that that should flow from everything that we believe and everything that we do. And so to find out what some of these other compelling marks are, we're going to look at Romans chapter 12, verses 13 through 18. This could be a sermon all to itself on the power of a compelling church. Romans chapter 12, 13 through 18 says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. 
Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Man, there are so many things in that one brief passage of Scripture that, that, should, that should shake us to the core of who we are. And we should evaluate, how are we doing in these areas? In fact, I loved Chris's song that he shared this morning. It talked about many of these things in that song. Talking about weeping with those who weep and laughing with those who laugh. And, and that's what we are called to do. Because a compelling church is marked by people who are committed to contributing, to blessing others, rejoicing and weeping with others, living, living in harmony with others, esteeming others, forgiving others, and living at peace with others. <coughs> you see, <clears throat> most people are willing to invest in programs and processes that benefit them. To understand that, all you have to do is look at any community music program, any community sports program. It's oftentimes run by moms and dads who want the best system for their children to be part of. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. People are willing to give their time, their energy, and their efforts, especially when it benefits them or their children. But as God's people, we're called to a commitment that is much greater than that. We are called to contribute to the needs of others. We are, we are called to show hospitality to one another. We're called to bless those who persecute you. We're called to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep. We're called to do these things, not because there is any benefit to us, but because we serve a God who loved us that way. Because we're to love others as Christ loved us. And there's no way that I can do that in my own strength. It's only through the power of God living in me. You see, when your commitment to a church or to a ministry or to a discipleship relationship with someone else in your life, when that relationship transcends the good feeling that you get, the thanks that you may receive, or any other benefit that you have, that points to something deeper going on. When we have those kinds of relationships, when we have those kind of service opportunities, and there's no benefit for us, it points to something deeper there. And in, in, in our church, when people commit and contribute, not because they're being paid, not because it benefits them or their family, but because Christ loved them, and so they want to love others, that points to a supernatural love. In fact, you know, as a church, one of the things that sometimes most churches struggle with is finding people who are willing and wanting to be involved. And sadly, that should not be so. In fact, if you are serving in some ministry here because you think the church needs you, I give you full permission to step away from that ministry and to be done. If the only reason that you are there is because you think that we're desperately in need for you, then you think God cannot accomplish his plans without you. And ultimately, that puts you in the position of power and authority. The reality is, is that the church doesn't need me. The church doesn't need you. 
Need-based service is how the world operates. And God's church shouldn't have to operate that way. You and I should desire to serve in a ministry because of the love that Christ has given us. And out of the overflow of all that God has done for us, we want to serve others and demonstrate that love to others. And because of the Holy Spirit that's in me, when I hear about needs and when I hear about ministry opportunities, I should be willing to listen to and obey the Holy Spirit in my life and then be called to action. Not because God needs me to do his job, but because I love Christ. And because of that, I love others. God doesn't need me. So if you're here this morning and you're serving out of the abundant love for your Savior, praise God. We need many, many more Christians serving with that kind of an attitude and heart. But if you're serving just because you think that the church is desperate and that God ultimately is desperate, unfortunately, I think you're sadly mistaken. You see, we're not called to simply provide for needs, but to love supernaturally as Christ has loved. We're called to die to self. We're called to bring glory to God, not to ourselves. And praise the Lord if that's the heart that you are serving with this morning. Because in the end, I want us to remember that it's really not about community. It's about God and his plan of redemption. In the end, it's not about the community that we create. It's not about the relationships that we have. In the end, everything is about God and pointing to him and glorifying him through everything that we do. Our fundamental problem as human beings is and always will be not our lack of community, but the fact that we are a sinful people who are separated from God. And that's what leads to unfulfilled, unsatisfied people wandering around in this dark world, not knowing how to interact. And, and, and so sometimes we create evangelism programs that try to force our way into some need. And we think, well, as long as I can just get people here, then, then maybe they'll hear about Jesus. No, in God's redemptive plan, it's not about our needs. It's about him. And so in everything that we do as a church, in everything that we do to try to to be a compelling community, we must keep the gospel and keep Christ at the center of all of it. Because we can't accomplish anything if we are not loving as Jesus loved. The fact of the matter is, Jesus met lots of people's needs. Meeting needs is not a bad thing. Please don't hear that this morning. But if we're trying to meet needs in our own strength and in our own love, there's no way that we can accomplish anything supernatural. Let me restate this thought from earlier. As a church, we need to recognize our tendency towards similarity. We need to aspire toward community where similarity isn't necessary. We, we need to not just gather around people that are like us. We need to be more than that. Why? So that we can demonstrate God's love to others. Because that kind of community will be a powerful tool that God can use here in St. John's and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And my hope is that 
through this month of being challenged about local evangelism, that we will strive to be that kind of community, the kind of community that loves as Jesus loves and wants to make an impact in the world around us. Let's pray together. Father, it's overwhelming for us to think about the fact that you have called us to serve you in this world in such a way that we are your light. Not because of the light that's in us, but because of your light, the light of Christ that is in us. It's, it's not about us, it's about you. And so, Father, I pray that you would challenge each and every one of us. Examine our hearts. Father, are there areas in our lives that we need to confess to you? Weaknesses that we've allowed to become strongholds in our lives that are preventing us from loving others as Jesus loved us. Oh, Father, there's so much that we know that your disciples, first disciples, didn't. And I pray, Lord, that you would compel us to obey your word and to live for you in such a way, Lord, that that others around us will want to know about the redemptive plan, that they'll want to know about your saving work, that they'll want to know about your grace and your mercy because it is written all over everything that we do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.